I can't get enough of this one. It's a great song for many of us that, that don't have family nearby. This song is so sentimental because when you're home for Christmas, it's a really special thing. We're going to talk about coming home this morning in our message, but we are in the middle of a series called The One, and we're looking at the Christmas story, but we are kind of doing this in a different way. We're looking at Christmas, but doing it through the lens of Jesus and his mission. And so, yeah, let's talk about Christmas, but let's talk about why we even have Christmas. Yes, the, the shepherds and the angel and the, the, the wise men and all that, but why did Jesus come? Why did he come to this earth? What is this all about? And then also, what does it have to do with our church? Why do we have the vision and the values that we have? How does it connect with Christmas? So we're going to look at some lost things in this series, The One. We've been looking at the lost things in Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells these three different stories, and this is the last story that he tells, and he tells a story that you maybe have heard before about the prodigal son. It's probably the most famous parable of Jesus, this idea of this wayward son, and we're going to dive into this story this morning, and, but we're also going to ask three questions at the end that I hope will kind of help us phrase this story in a new light. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 here. As Jesus is telling these stories about lost things, and every good sermon has to have like a really good alliteration, and so I did some of my best work to come up with some, some words that help define these different segments of this story. So I hope you see that as we go through here, and I hope you, you appreciate all of the, the, the sweet alliterations that you'll see, okay? Let's start in Luke 15, verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, he's continuing telling these stories about lost things. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So we start with dealing with some finances. So we're, we're talking about finances. Maybe you've dealt with this in your family. Maybe you've dealt with an inheritance issue. Someone passed away and you had to deal with some inheritance. I'm sure it went well, right? <laughs> it's, it's always no big deal. And um, it's just really, really easy situation, pleasant experience. So the, the young son looks at his father and it's almost like he says, so, you know, Dad, I've, I'm, I'm kind of grown up now, and I'm, I kind of know what life is all about, and I have everything figured out. And you know I recently finished my MBA, and um, I'm looking at the inflation rate and just kind of thinking it's probably best right now for me to go ahead and take those assets that are coming to me. Why don't you go ahead and liquidate your assets and give me what's going to be mine because I think I can do it better and I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and, and I'm, I'm going to get out of here. You know, you don't really need me here anyway, Dad. I'm, I'm just in your hair and you have, you have my older brother and he's the one that can kind of take care of you and 
help out. And so, Dad, I'm just going it, to, it's, it's not you, it's me, and not, you know, it's not personal, it's, it's business. I'm just going gonna to take off, and it'll be better this way. Why don't you just go ahead and give me my money that I'm going to get someday when you're gone? Hey, it's a pretty cringeworthy story, right? It doesn't feel good just even joking about it like that. Dividing the assets is something that only happens when the patriarch passes away. And so here is this younger sibling that's looking his father in the eye and saying, you know what? I'd rather you not be here. Can we just skip to the part where you're dead and gone and I get some money? Because that part sounds much more fun than whatever is going on here with you and me. This is the part of Jesus telling the story where the wives would have reached over to their husbands and like pushed their chin up because their jaws are just on the ground going, you've got to be kidding me. There is no way that someone could be that disrespectful. There's no way that a son could literally look their father in the eye and say these types of things and wish their father dead in order to get their inheritance. It was so far outside of their minds in a patriarchal culture. And this is how Jesus starts off his story. Here's the more absurd thing. (laughs) The father actually does it. This is the part where they just would have been knocked over like a, like a feather in the wind. You've got to be kidding me. The father's going to take the shame of this son, and then the father's going to make this shame public by actually selling off some of his assets to give this kid, this spoiled, rotten kid, his inheritance. You've got to be kidding me. This sounds so bonkers. The story starts off with shocking finances, and then the next act in our story is some fun. And so in 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. We can only imagine what this wild living is all about. Later in the story, the older sibling tries to rat out his younger sibling to his father, saying that he squandered his money on prostitutes. Now, we don't actually know that that was the case, but we definitely know that the younger son had a lot of money, and it burned a hole in his pocket. And he went big, and he went hard, and he lost it all. There's a podcast that I listen to called Dadville, and a couple of musicians do this podcast where they bring people in and kind of have them tell their story, and uh, the tagline is, in pursuit of awesome dadding. And so they had Scott Harrison, the CEO of Charity Water, on there recently, and he was talking about his experience growing up in a Christian household, and then his period of rebellion, and he didn't want anything to do with God. He left, he moved to New York City, he became a nightclub promoter, and in 10 years, he worked for 40 different nightclubs, and his job was to fill these clubs with rich, beautiful, famous people that would spend a lot of money. 
and he had the lifestyle that went along with it. He said, I did everything under the book. I was, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was cussing, I was looking at pornography, I was sleeping around, I was doing drugs, just anything and everything. He was about it. And he said, I had this life that I was pursuing. I had the car. I had the girlfriend that was on the cover of the magazine being a model. He was like, I hated myself. I hated my life. I became my worst version of myself. And he had this conversion experience. And he came back and he realized that he needed to do everything in his life differently. It wasn't just a, what do I need to do? It's like, if I'm doing this, I need to do the opposite. And so he decided to tithe one year of his life. He's going to give one year back to God in service for the 10 years he spent rebelling. Eventually, he found a medical missions organization that would accept his application and believe that he wasn't just going to throw wild parties and, and be crazy the whole time. And it was there that he saw the poverty and the destruction, and he saw the water crisis firsthand. And it was during that year that he realized he had gone from selling bottles of water in the club for $10 and that God was calling him to do something about the global water crisis and help bring clean drinking water to the poorest of the poor around the world. That didn't happen without him going wayward. It didn't happen without his 10 years of so-called fun. But he eventually came back. I think that we all have a little bit of the younger son spirit in us. I think we all want some of the fun and the attention and the excitement that a sinful life has to offer. If this wasn't true, places like Bourbon Street and places like Vegas wouldn't exist. We spend time on social media secretly admiring the fun and the fame and the fitness of others, but we all know that it ends up empty. For the younger son, his fun ended up in famine. Verse 14 says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Oh, how quickly it all goes away. You could put it another way, how fragile life can be. Some of you know this. Some of you know how quickly a call from the doctor can change everything. Some of you know how a car wreck can instantly upend your life. How a divorce can shatter what you thought was there. How in the middle of the night a storm can come in and literally turn our lives upside down down. Life is short, and life is fragile, and in a moment, the money can dry up. In a moment, the stock market can be done, and the wealth that we have worked so hard to accumulate is gone. The fun dries up, and the fun disappears, and we go from fun to famine, and at least for this younger sibling, it goes to filth. Verse 15 says, so when he, he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him 
anything. This is his rock bottom moment. The Jewish code has has rules about clean and unclean animals. And let's just put it this way. Pigs are definitely unclean. And so by the very nature of his work, he is ceremonially unclean. If he was back in his normal life, he would be excluded from almost every aspect of his life. He would not be allowed to go to the the temple or the synagogue to worship. He would not be allowed to be in physical contact with other people. He would not be allowed to sit down and enjoy a meal with someone until he became clean again. This is just a major departure from his entire life and his entire cultural identity. You could almost hear the listeners of Jesus just gasp like, oh, it's so bad. He's so far gone. He's so lost. Wow. He's living in filth and he's starving. He's in this foreign land and he's so despised. He's so looked down upon that the people see him and they see him as a foreigner, and they won't even give him food. He's not even dignified or respectable enough to lend a helping hand and to help out. Uh, a side note, I want to rat out a couple guys in our church, uh, James Gage and, and Matt Vigel, who have just done some amazing work with a, an organization and, and brought it to our attention called Nova Raft. And RAS stands for Resettling Afghan Families Together. And, and so they've taken part in helping move families into uh, an apartment and get used and donated furniture and, and get them set up so that families can have a life together. Help them with driving tests and learn how to, how to drive and pass their, their tests so they can provide for their family. Helping them do things like learn the language better. Now, when you're a foreigner, who is going to help? Who's going to see you as someone that is respectable and dignified enough to lend a helping hand? The younger son didn't find that. We have an opportunity to do something. You'll find things in the the app or in the Sunday program, in your message notes about how you can get involved on Facebook if you would like. We have the opportunity to respond with compassion. The younger son found none of that when he hit rock bottom. He was utterly lost. And his lost state, it made him begin to think. And he has this realization. He starts to think about home. He starts to think about his father. What type of man was his father like? You know what? He hires people at his, at his home. It says, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? What am I doing? I'm here starving to death. So here's my idea. I have this realization. I'll go out and I'll go back to my father and I'll get this whole speech together and I'll tell him, hey, I've sinned. I know that I've messed up. I know that I can't be your son anymore. But maybe you can let me be a hired hand. Maybe I can just work for you. I've forfeited all of my rights as a son. I get that. But I just need a job. Can you just give me a job? So he got out and he went to his father. He remembers his dad is a fair person. 
that he hires people to do a job. He's already doing the worst job he can think of, the worst job he could imagine. He's already in that state. He's already hit rock bottom. So he sets out to home, but he ends up getting more than he could have ever bargained for. The realization leads to restoration. It says, while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now, none of these actions are respectable actions on behalf of the father. None of this is dignified behavior. You don't do this if you are a wealthy patriarch. You don't act like this. When your son tells you to drop dead, you don't run and shower love and attention and affection on them. It just doesn't happen. He's running, which is just physically difficult. He would have had a long embroidered robe on that would have gone down to his ankles. Have you ever tried to run in a long robe like that? I haven't, okay? But I would think it would be hard, okay? One, one time I did, I can't remember which kid this was. It was one of the boys. We were at a pool, and they were cold, and so they get out, and we take the towel, and we wrap it around them. We're, you know, trying to keep them warm and stuff, and then they look over, and they see the, the chair there, and they start to, like, penguin waddle over to the chair. The problem was, yeah, it's difficult to move your legs when you're all wrapped up, but we'd also wrapped up his arms, <laughs> And so as he started to go down, it was a timber situation, and he had no way to stop himself. And just, boom, parent of the year, awesome, dadding, <laughs> right there. But it happens, and he survived. Running in a robe is difficult. In order to do it, you have to reach down and grab the bottom and, and cinch it up. You have to expose your ankles and your legs and your thighs to be able to get the range of motion that you need to run. So undignified. And yet the father did this in haste to shower love on his youngest son. What a beautiful picture. The son starts his well-rehearsed speech and start. okay, dad, stop. I, I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm not able to be, his dad cuts him off. No, 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 I don't want to hear it. He, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Who do you think has the best robe in the house? The father, right? Hey, bring my best robe and put on my son. Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter in the late 1600s, just did a beautiful job helping bring this image to our imagination. And you get the sense of the father's embrace on this tattered, dirty, starving, emaciated younger sibling. But you know what? Soon he's going to be dressed like the father. He's going to have this robe on him. He, he narrows in on his feet, and look at his, his feet, and his shoes are just barely hanging on. His sandals are almost worn slick, that they're just dangling there on his feet. You know who goes barefoot? Servants go barefoot. Slaves go barefoot. He says, no, 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 you're not going to work for me. You're not going to be my servant. 
You're going to be a son. We're going to put shoes on your feet again. Bring the ring. We want to put a ring on your finger. This is the status of symbol and of authority and responsibility in the family. No, 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 you're not going to work for me. You're going to be a member of this family again. You're going to carry the same weight and authority in this family. All the while, the son's just thinking, no, 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 I just need a place to work. I, I've, I've messed up so much. How in the world could I be redeemed? How could I be restored? Friends, this is the gospel in story form. We get to see this is what it means to be the good news of Jesus. What a cool story that you are never too far lost. You're never too far gone to accept the love of the warm embrace of the Father, to be restored and made new again, to be forgiven by the Father. The story can't get any better than that right there. His realization leads to restoration, but that's not how our story ends. There's more to this passage, as Jesus tells it. We go from realization to restoration to resentment, because there's someone else in this story. In verse 25, it says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and he heard the dancing, so he calls one of his servants. Hey, what's going on? They tell him, your brother has come back. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. Now, the fattened calf is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's, think of his wealth. His wealth is in his land and his property, and his, his wealth is in his livestock. These are the things that have allowed this father to have these possessions, to, to be pretty wealthy from the clues in this story, that he's had this generational wealth that's been passed down, and you really want to take care of your livestock. And it's really helpful if the livestock is alive, because if they're alive, then they can produce things like milk, and they can produce things like babies. But if you kill the livestock for the meat, you only get the meat one time. That's a, that's a one-time deal. And so when he is doing this, he's saying, hey, this is such a big deal. We're going to party, and we are going to celebrate. And by the way, there's no refrigeration either. So there's a timetable on eating all of this food. When I was in college and when I would come back home for Christmas, uh, my, my parents, my family grew up kind of raising cattle on the side. It wasn't my dad's full-time day job, but he grew up kind of farming and ranching and a fun little hobby, anywhere from 50 to 150 head of steer probably. And so I hated it. I hated working the cattle. It was not my cup of tea, but... When I came home for Christmas, my parents would take me out into the garage and they'd open the deep freezer of the one steer that they kept and they butchered and they would fill up a cooler for me. When I went back to college, I would have frozen ground beef and I would have T-bone steaks. I had another roommate that over Christmas break, his family would go fishing in Alaska. And so he'd come back with his cooler of halibut and salmon. I had another roommate, it gets better, 
He went to the Culinary Institute of America. We ate well. We had a ton of fun. We were so spoiled and we did not know it. We did not understand. It was not real life. It was amazing. There's no deep freezer here. So when he kills the fattened calf, not only is that calf not going to reproduce and not going to you know, provide for future, it's, it's now and that food needs to be eaten and we are going to have a party here and now. It was instant grace to share. The, the older brother becomes angry. The older brother refuses to go into the party. So his father went out. What did his father do? His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Listen to that word. The older sibling saying, I've been slaving for you. It's a, it's a harsh term. And I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He is frustrated. He is hurt. The older sibling has been morally obedient, okay? He's saying, hey, I've done the right thing, at least externally. It looks good on the outside, but kind of the way he says it is, I haven't disobeyed you. doesn't necessarily mean that he's fully obeyed. doesn't necessarily mean that he has the same heart as the father. doesn't mean that he is walking in step and him and the father are one. He's saying, hey, I haven't disobeyed you. I've been slaving for you. Why would he do that? He's like, I I haven't even gotten a goat out of the deal. He's like, what's in it for me? For him, it's transactional. For him, he wants something from the Father as well. He's working. He stayed home. He stayed close, but he's doing it for his own selfish reasons as well. He distanced himself from his brother. He, he calls his brother that son of yours. He doesn't say it's his brother. He's like, oh, that's, that's your son. He's putting himself on the outside of the family. And the father pleads with him, son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate, and we have to be glad, because your brother, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He was lost but now it's found. I think there's an older brother spirit in us as well. I think all of us have an older sibling spirit that can creep up. When someone else is successful, you ever feel resentment? When someone else gets that promotion, does it ever just make you grit your teeth? Maybe we feel entitled to have well, more than we currently have. Maybe the, the material possessions or seeing the, the vacation photos on social media that just send you into a spiral. You see this in kids, right? Um, why do they get to? Well, how come they get to do this? And my kids might say, well, why do they get to do that? Well, because they have parents that are nicer than, I, than you do, so <laughs> their parents are better. But the crazy part is, 
the older brother could have enjoyed the party. I mean, the older brother was invited to the party by the father, pleading, please come in. I want you to be a part of this. But that older sibling spirit wouldn't allow it. The resentment was too much of a barrier. I want to look at three questions real quick as we close up here. First, I normally do this at the beginning of a message, but I wanted to let that story sit. We maybe know it. Let's live in that story a little bit. And now what I want to do is I want to kind of zoom out and ask the question, what's the context? What's the context of this story? Why is Jesus even telling this? Or better yet, to whom is Jesus telling this story? This is series three of a story about lost things. The beginning of Luke 15, when he starts these stories on lost things, it says in 15, 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here, Luke and Jesus, are, they're trying to set up, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? Why would Jesus associate himself with those younger siblings that are off living wild, crazy, reckless lives? Why is he hanging out with those people that are so despicable that you don't want to associate with them? Why is he doing that? And that's why he tells this story about lost things. There are two groups of people here. There, there are the, the tax collectors and sinners. They're like the, the younger sibling in our story. And then there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people, and they are the older sibling in this story. And Jesus says, I need both of you, I need both sides, both groups of these people to understand, to see themselves in this story. I want both of you, I'm begging you that you would see yourself in here, that you would understand for the younger sibling that I am calling you to come home, that you can be forgiven. Come be home with me. And to the older sibling, I'm, I'm begging you to have the right heart. Do the right things, but do them for the right reason and come home and be close to me, the Father. Second question, where's the searching? These other two stories in Luke, there's something lost, and then people search for it. There's a lost sheep, and the shepherd leaves all the 99 and goes and gets that one sheep. Or there's a lost coin, and the lady turns her house upside down looking for, searching for the lost coin. Here we have a story of a lost son who goes out and does his own thing and far away from the father, gets into trouble, but there's no searching. Who, who searches for this lost son? It's weird. It's not until the lost son kind of picks his head up and starts to analyze his life and go, oh, you know what? I, I should do something different. I'm going to go back to the father. He's the one that turns around and goes back home. Who is searching for him? 
Now, granted, the father does look out for the son. The father does run towards the son. The father does do some, some action like that. But when the father sold his estate, we had to liquidate a third of his assets to be able to split this. It's not a 50-50 inheritance split. The older sibling gets two-thirds of the inheritance. And so he gets a double portion. So in order to get the third that goes to the younger son, he has to sell off some assets. He has to sell some property. He has to sell some livestock so he can go, okay, here's your third. What happened to that other two-thirds? Who does that belong to now? It really belongs to the older son, doesn't it? So the father is living on the dependency of the older son. Everything that is there, everything else in the story is really the older sons. The older son takes the responsibility of the father because he has already divided his assets as if he was long and gone. Who should be searching for the lost younger sibling? The older sibling. He should be taking on the weight and the responsibility of the father to go find him. Last week, we introduced these cards that are on your seat, and we asked you, who are the people in your life that you should be searching for? Who are the people in your life that God's put on your heart that you go, man, I just want them to understand the love of the Father. I just want them to understand what it's like to be forgiven and to be free, really free by God. And so we ask you to, on the back to write the name of that person and you to keep one card and write their name on another one and you put that in the offering bucket in the back or in the lobby. And last week, we have 121 names of people that you are praying for and that we are praying for together. That we are thinking about who are the lost people around us? Who are the people that need to understand who God is and what he's done for him. Let's join together to pray for those together. Who's doing the searching? God calls us to search. God calls us to partner with him to search for the lost ones. Last question, who's the prodigal? Traditionally, we call this the story of the prodigal son, right? Um, Prodigal doesn't actually mean wayward. It doesn't mean like oh, he's lost and because he left. Prodigal actually has this idea of being wasteful. So it's, it's spending money or resources freely and recklessly. It's wasteful extravagance. So yeah, the younger son is a prodigal because he goes out, but it's not the fact that he goes out, it's how he lives his life when he goes out. The fact that he was wasteful in his spending. I would argue that there's another one in this story that is quite reckless as well. I would contend that the father is reckless in his decision to divide his assets. I would contend that the father is reckless in his uh, decision to be dependent on the older brother. I would contend that he is reckless to respond in love and grace and forgiveness to this younger son who has told him to drop dead. 
I would say that this parable could be called the prodigal father and his love for his lost sons because they're both lost. Both sons are lost, but it's not really about them being lost. It's about the father's love towards both of them in their lostness. The prodigal father and his love for his lost sons. As we finish up and think about that Christmas song, I'll be home for Christmas. What's, what's the hook at the very end, right? If only in my dreams. We're not guaranteed to be there. And I think about how this story ends. We don't really know what happens at the end of this story. Jesus doesn't resolve it for us. He tells a story to two different groups of people that are both lost, but what are they going to choose? Will the older sibling come in? Will he be changed? We don't know how it ends. Will he choose forgiveness or will he choose resentment? Jesus tells this story to two groups of people. But it's the angel that tells the shepherds the story in Luke 2.10, where he says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Jesus but may we also celebrate why Jesus came. For he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring great joy for all the people. He came to save his two lost sons. And he came to save me. And he came to save you.